0: Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 106. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. You're tuned into the Thread podcast, and Thread is a little bit different. It's a podcast for leaders. If you're a spiritual leader in your family or at school or in the marketplace or even in some position in a church or a nonprofit organization, Thread is here for you. We take God's word and we look carefully verse by verse for examples from scripture that we can use to inform ourselves to be better leaders and be God's hands and be God's voice in the world. So I'm glad you've tuned in today. You know, my goal is by the end of this podcast, you're going to have a a better understanding of just how great, in this case, uh, conflict can end up. You know, there are times that you just need to talk about something as a group. It's obviously there. You know, they talk about the elephant in the room that we just don't want to talk about. But if you've got the courage to deal with things, and if the people around you have a good spirit about it. Conflict can actually lead you to a much higher place than you were in the very beginning. That's what this episode is about, and I don't want you to be afraid of conflict, but I want you to understand while nobody wants conflicts, and we certainly don't want to stir up conflicts, we don't have to run and hide just because there's a conflict. Um, This lesson in particular, we're in Acts chapter 15, One of the biggest conflicts in the uh, early church's history, it's a doctrinal dispute over whether Gentiles have to become Jews before they can follow Jesus. Do they have to earn a righteousness according to the law before the righteousness, which is by grace, through the blood of Christ, can take effect in their lives? Do we still have to keep the law? And there was a very strong sentiment among those Jews who had come out of Phariseeism as their sect in, in Judaism, and they felt very strongly that everyone has to follow the laws of Moses. They came first, even before Jesus, and we follow those laws first, and then we can move on to the teaching of Jesus. And they insisted that Gentiles become fully Jews before they could become Christians, and this became a huge conflict. Paul made it a conflict because he stood up and he argued strongly against this uh, in in Antioch where these leaders had come down and began to teach the Gentiles, and he debated with them and Barnabas debated with them, and they finally called for a general council of the elders of the church to come and settle this thing once and for all so that everyone didn't just have their own opinion about it. But they needed to have one unified opinion, and that's really important. You know, they understood the importance of unity. They never thought once about splitting off and making their own church. It was, no, there's one church, but we've got to agree on this issue. Um, I think it's a really great case study of how a church should handle conflict in a way that moves things forward toward greater unity, because the unity's already been affected by whatever the conflict is over. It's in our gut. It's in our heart. We're just not willing to talk about certain things, and if we do, everybody gets mad, because we've never settled it. And so in this case, the church deals with it face-up, and they settle it. My good friend Dr. Fred Garman always says that conflict is a pregnant opportunity where some real change can take place because, uh, you know, everybody's finally speaking their heart. All right, so in this story, we're going to run into another thing, though, and that's the circumstance of meeting a natural leader. For the first 15 years of the early church's history, Simon Peter's personality loomed over the New Testament church. He was clearly the leader of the movement, and he was the shepherd of the Jerusalem church and he governed it and uh, along with the uh, other apostles and Peter uh, set up the ministries of that of, of that fellowship and he administrated it but over the last 15 years a larger ministry has grown up for him and Peter has began has begun to travel widely throughout his part of the middle east and he's representing the cause of Christ he's explaining the ways of Jesus He is strengthening local churches. He is helping to evangelize, and he is bringing his apostolic authority to bear in mission situations, which is primarily what being an apostle is all about. Some people love that title, and they just want to be the boss, and it doesn't just mean the boss. Apostle means you've been sent out with a mission. You're like an ambassador representing someone greater than yourself, and so... Now, Peter understood this role that he, he was to roam and travel, and Paul mentions how much Peter travels and that he takes his wife with him uh, as he goes because this was sort of the permanent state of his ministry was to be moving around and, and use that authority that God gave him to establish places of worship, to build local churches up and strengthen the people, and to act as a spiritual father in the land. And so in the absence of Peter, that's my guess, uh, due to his constant travels, James, not James the Apostle, he was beheaded. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James has come to be the senior elder of the Jerusalem church, and Scripture is entirely silent about this. And I really wish we had a little more information, because I just find it so fascinating how this could even happen. When you have apostles present that Jesus empowered, how did James, just because of, I don't know, uh, get to be the leader of the church? But I can tell you one, one of the reasons James is the leader of the Jerusalem church by now, it's that he is the natural leader in that place. And uh, some pastors can't deal with this, you know, you, especially if you're a young pastor or a new pastor, and you move into a community to be the leader and the shepherd of that church, you need to understand something, and that is you're an outsider. You are not the highest-ranking person in that church. Your title might say that you are, but in truth, there is a brother or a sister in that congregation, and they have been faithful, and they are mature, and they are an example of what believers should be, and the people in that congregation already look to that person as their spiritual sort of the alpha In the group, you know, in a pack mentality, it's the one that stands out among the others and everyone is already following them. Now, I have tried uh, one time and failed miserably to choose someone to make them an elder. When I could tell the people didn't see them as an elder, they didn't relate to them as someone who was more mature spiritually than them, but I thought that all this person needed maybe was some better coaching and training, and I took this person under wing for a couple of years and worked diligently to help them become a shepherd and to help the sheep accept them, and you know, it just never took. And eventually I just had to reshuffle and, and move that individual to another role, because the people didn't see him that way. Well, in this case, it's the opposite. They do see James as their leader. And James, while this debate is going on, and and last week we were already talking in the last episode about uh, how Paul brought his case to bear, and then the Pharisees among Christians rose up, and they argued against Paul's case, and then Peter used his authority. And he stood and he said, Brothers, listen to me and he began to tell the stories. Peter's really smart that way. He began to tell the stories of what God had done, and they all knew that these stories were true and that they were a clear revelation of what God wanted out of his new, new people, this new kingdom, this church that he had established. Uh, Peter understood it, and and they began to listen to him. And the Scripture said that they became silent. They just fell silent after he spoke, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, Now, um, oh, so just to go back and and close the loop on something I started saying, if you're given the leadership of a group that has already existed and already has leaders, you just need to figure out who these leaders are, and it won't take long. You just watch the behavior, the reaction of others. uh, Who do they turn their heads toward in a discussion to hear what that person has to say, and those people are your natural leaders. Lead through them. Get them on your side. Spend some time with them. Help them get accommodated you know, to you so that they get comfortable with you and they know that they can trust you. And generally, they will follow. And uh, you'll be able to move the hearts of the people and to give them because this person has authority and they have been already verified by the church. Okay, now jumping back into our case study here. You know, Paul's position in this... I believe, was right, you know, and he's got scriptural evidence, and he's got the hand of God moving among Gentiles without them having to uh, keep the law. The Holy Spirit was being poured out. They were speaking in tongues. We had miracles. People were being totally delivered from their bondage, and they never had gone into the first step of having to keep the ceremonial and food laws of Israel. Israel. Now, some Pharisee Jewish Christians were just blind cultural triumphalist, and that's a big, way, big word, way of saying they just believe we're number one. We're number one. We're the special ones. We're the right ones, the absolutely only right ones. And you know, this is just such a nauseating attitude to have come into somebody. And when you mix power and conservative religion, you are very often going to get this cocktail, and it's poison. Well, James wasn't. James is really uh, traditionalist, and he is very much for Jewish culture, but James is a little bit different. You can tell that for James, the real fear that he had in his heart was simply that this flood of pagans into the church, because that's what they were, they were used to, and Paul mentioned some of the stuff they brought with them in 1 Corinthians, you know, rank immorality, sleeping with your father's wife, you know, this is your stepmother, and drunkenness in the church fellowship. And, you know, it's just a mess. And so the, um, there was a legitimate fear among Jewish believers that this flood of pagans is going to create a fallen church that has no morals, that doesn't have the ethics that God has insisted upon since the creation and so that, you know, that's kind of what's at stake here. And uh, so James, you, know, you can tell he's a wise man. James does not enter the battle. There's you know, debates going on, and Paul speaks, and Peter speaks, and the Pharisees are speaking, and uh, James, as far as we can tell, doesn't say a word. Well, now it's finished. Peter spoke, and everyone is silenced. And verse 13 says, And after they became silent, James answered, saying, Men and brothers, listen to me. And he starts off agreeing with what he just heard, Simon, Simon, the Lord's apostle. Simon has declared, let me stop before I go any further. I am so glad to see the collegial uh, relational nature of brothers in the early church. You do not hear him say, brothers, Reverend Dr. Professor Simon you know, the great Lord Bishop, high potentate of our church. You know, would somebody carry his briefcase for him, and let's give him a special big velvety chair to sit on and, and you know, some servants to wait on him. Now, that's nonsense. They didn't even put a title before him. It's Simon. You know, it's one of us. They didn't have this huge hierarchy that would develop over time. It was absent in the original germ of the church, and we need to watch All this stuff that we drag in and mess up Christianity with. So verse 14, he says, Simon's already declared to you how God visited the Gentiles through him to take out of them a people for his name. And then he says, uh, you know, dealing with the great fear is verse 15. With this action, Gentiles entering the church. This, the prophets agree with this. It is written in Scripture. And he begins to quote Scripture that will back up the inclusion of Gentiles. And as he quotes, especially in verse 17, uh, he says, "...so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name." And so he says in verse 18, "...God knows from eternity all his works." You know, he is, um, he's got a theocentric worldview. God is a sinner and Lord of all things, And God, in His sovereignty, wants Gentiles. He said He would do it, and He has done it, and it's settled. Verse 19, Therefore, I judge we should not trouble those from the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should simply write to them, I added simply, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from drinking blood. In um, verse 21, Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. He's actually got a very balanced approach, and he, um, you know, he's quoting Amos, Amos 9-11, that God has come and thrown open the doorway to all mankind, and now everyone can seek him and everyone can know him. Verse 18, we already read, he marvels how big God thinks Uh, You know, as a Jew, he would never have thought to include Gentiles, and he still clearly struggles to get personally involved in anything related to Gentiles. Uh, Curiously, in verse 19, he assumes a little more authority than any Christian leader before him ever has by simply saying, I judge, um, as though his spiritual eldership over the Jerusalem congregation, uh, among other elders—he's not the only elder— Gives him the power to render a verdict here, but he's assuming this, and uh, apparently, no one disagrees with it. And then a compromise gesture to Pharisees, but also um, a way of expressing the the reservation that the J- the Jerusalem Jews have toward Gentile behavior in church. You know, they say basically. These are things Christians just don't do. We're not going to give you any food laws, eat what you like. That's a huge step for them, by the way. We're not going to put on you any food laws except the barbaric practice of drinking blood, eating blood, cooking blood, because the Old Testament said the life of the creature is in the blood, and the blood was where you made the atonement for your sin, and they just said blood... Uh, in in the history of God's work on the earth, blood is sacred. Jesus shed his blood, and we need to honor the blood um, of an animal and not eat it. Uh, secondly, no sexual immorality. That was clearly taught by Christ. Uh, Jesus didn't teach food laws, but he did teach against sexual immorality. They took a hard line on idolatry because they had seen what that did in Israel and how how strongly God judged Israel and actually destroyed their nation and sent them into exile simply over the practice of the worship of idols. And every one of these Gentile believers worshipped idols. And so when they came to Christ, that was a very big deal for the Jewish church was to say, don't forget how, uh, how idols incense the anger of God. It is adultery, to him, and Christians can't have anything to do with idolatry. Don't get involved in it. Don't. Uh, they're, they didn't even want... Uh, apparently, they're making reference to the food that's been offered to idols. Paul doesn't seem to think an idol is anything, uh, but again, he's being a thinker about it, and the Jews are going, stay away from everything related to idols, because we've seen God's hand uh, working to bring judgment against anyone who gets involved in idols. And if you will obey us in these things, you're going to do well. Verse 29 is the end of their letter. Verse 21, Paul, sa- um, James says, You know, Moses and the law have been around for centuries, and if the law could save the world, and if the teachings of Moses could save the world, it would have already done it. So th- I think that was a pretty huge... Statement on his side. So, verse 22 will settle this thing clearly and let's send some envoys for us. And I think that's really important to note. The New Testament church was primarily relational and it clearly understood that a church is, is only as strong as its unity. And they wanted to ensure and secure true unity among the believers in Jesus. So they were dealing with this conflict openly. It wasn't like closed-door meeting, no one can know what we decided. No, it's being done openly, and they acted with integrity according to the teachings of Scripture. If you read the letter that they wrote, and we have the letter, it's quite short, uh, in this passage, first of all, they accept responsibility for the mistake. And that's pretty important, too, as a leader. You need to learn to say, I messed up. I'm sorry. Now, they did not send these people out, but the people were from their church that went out, and there was a sentiment that maybe some of them had talked around without thinking so clearly about you know the theological background of their position, just as Jews. You know, there, there's you know there's ways people talk over dinner uh, about their fears, and you know, I've heard people say Christians say. Well, they just ought to take a bomb and just bomb that whole country. And, I, you know, I call them on it sometimes and go, really? You'd really kill everyone in the country uh, over foreign policy about this or that? Well, there's terrorists there. Well, there's terrorists in a lot of places, but you don't kill everybody in the whole country. It just is running your mouth sometimes. So I don't know what... Be, what uh, I don't know what all they might have done that helped fuel this, but these people were people they knew, and they had gone out feeling empowered by the others in this group. So they start off with accepting the responsibility. We heard some went out from us, and they made trouble among you. So they accept that. Uh, We did this. Uh, Verse, But they want to be very clear about this, and not that they are now changing their position uh, they say at the end of verse 24, we did not give them this authority. You know, we want to clearly state our position so you don't misunderstand what's going on right now. It's not that Paul came and he told us there's more of you than there are of us, and we voted and we were split. He said, That's, you know, we weren't won over. Uh, we never sent them to tell you those things. We do know them. They, were, they are from us but we didn't give them the authority or the message that they delivered, and we want you to know that. We never sent them. And verse 25, we are united on this. Notice how they honored Barnabas and Paul. They knew that these Gentiles know these two, and they want to make absolutely certain that the Gentiles are fully aware that the Jewish brothers love Barnabas and Paul, that they honor their work, and that anybody who says... That Paul is less than the others, and anyone who would attack his ministry is not representing how they see it. They see Barnabas and Paul as honorable men, powerful men of God, and they love them. Something else interesting, verse twenty-seven. This is good practice. You know, you need some good, like business practices in your ministry. Uh, you know, one of those is you don't count the money if you're the leader of a fellowship or any group that has money going, if you're the senior leader, you don't touch the money. I was never even present while money was being counted. Secondly, no, no one individual counts it. Uh, we had a group of three that counted. They made a tally that went to a bookkeeper who made the deposit. That deposit had to equal what that group had indiv- uh, independently counted. You know, you got to build systems. So their system was verification. That's the Reagan doctrine. When Reagan was president and he was trying to uh, reduce the number of nuclear missiles, uh, someone said, well, will you just trust the other countries, Russia in particular? Will you trust the Soviet Union to take their missiles down just because you took yours? And Reagan said, yes, we trust and verify. And that's what they're doing here. They said, okay, trust this letter, but we're going to verify this letter with humans. We're going to send two brothers from our church, and they chose a man named Judas, and if you look, his name is Barsabbas, and that's, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 1, and they were trying to decide who would replace Judas the traitor, they had two men, one was Mattathias and one was Barsabbas, and when they cast the lot to see who would be the next uh, apostle, it fell to Mattathias, and I don't know, maybe this is the um, Barsabbas who didn't get chosen, but he has stayed there, he's strong in the church, he's a powerful minister, and they choose him. And he goes, and a brother named Silas, again, both Jews, and they send them there and they say, we're sending two brothers with Paul to verify so no one can challenge what he has said and come by later and say, Paul just made this up and he wrote that letter. So we're going to send you people to back up uh, what, what is written here. And because they handled this with so much integrity... You know, this conflict did not uh, make a wound on Gentile believers. I mean, they watched, you know, they've seen conflicts all their life, but now they watched how Christians handle conflicts. And they saw, first of all, how passionate they were about their positions. I mean, when the Pharisees were in their church, wow, those guys were just railing. They had all their scriptures, and they were dogmatic, and then they saw Paul and Barnabas, like their fathers, standing up and debating them, and they, they heard the debate openly between these. They saw the real emotion, and you know, they wondered, wow, what's going to happen? But they didn't split their group off of the other group. They watched them now maturely, handle this, seek God, come to a conclusion that they said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They acknowledge that they did not, you know, have a letter drop out of heaven telling them what to do, that this is a human um, process of handling conflicts, and the Holy Spirit has guided them. They're all confident of that, and that they also agree as men uh, that they've They've sat together, and they've heard the voice of God, and they're all, they're all uh, satisfied with the result. And verse 31 says, the people rejoiced over this encouragement. You know what the feeling is? When leaders do what leaders are supposed to do, everybody feels loved, you know? These Gentile brothers are saying, our elders are awesome. These are men of God who are looking out for us. And now, and now they've sent, you know, Judas and Silas, two more Gentile, uh, Jews who maybe haven't been around Gentiles very much, and they're willing to mix with us and eat food with us and defile themselves according to their Jewish thinking, to bond with us and, and to uh, prophesy, you know, preach and teach uh, to us. And, you know, these guys just, they delay returning. They don't want to go back to Jerusalem. You know, they were just there for the reading of the letter and then they say, no, we're, we're enjoying this. And then after a while, it's time to go home, and Silas just refuses to go back. He says, no, I have found my calling. You know, I never even knew, I'm putting words in his mouth, but it's, it's, my sense I get is like, I've never been around Gentiles before. I didn't know what God was doing. I, I feel it now. I've seen it. And that's the great thing about a short-term missions trip is that it lets you see something with your eyes and get an awareness that can sometimes start a fire inside your heart. So conflict doesn't have to be something we run away from. Conflict can become the beginning of something even bigger and better than what we ever had before. And if we will learn the skills of handling conflict uh, without losing our head, but just walk through it you know, in a responsible way, and do it out, out in the open, um, you know, God can use this, and He can build unity bigger than it ever was before. But let me, if you're enjoying the Thread podcast, let me ask you to do something. We're really working hard to improve the, the podcast, and we're going to roll out a new website that I think is going is to be so much better than anything we've ever dreamed of before. And we're basically building a, uh, a platform, building a media platform that will have all kinds of stuff, That'll be helpful to you on your journey. So I need help from you. Here's what I need you to do. First of all, uh, give me some questions. We want to hear questions. We know you have them, and sometimes you email them in. But we have put a special section on the website right now. So if you go to quinley.com slash questions, and that's plural, quinley.com slash questions, and you'll go to a page, you just click a button, and you speak into your computer And you're recording a voicemail. Eventually, as we get the habit built up and some good questions in stock, we will play these questions out and we will answer them. So thanks for helping us there. Second of all, if you would help us get the word out, go to Quinley.com slash iTunes and leave us a rating on the iTunes network. And if you are a Facebook user, would you go to Quinley.com slash love? and pop in a Facebook uh, message there. Tell people you're listening to the Thread Podcast, enjoying it, and encourage them to do the same. Well, that's all for now. We'll talk to you next time on Thread Podcast, and I want to encourage you to expect God to use you. He intends to use you, and He will according to your faith. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley Log on to Quinley.com Thread